Hello, I'm Fern Cotton and this is Happy Place, the show that whisks you away to a calmer place. Today I'm chatting to Maya Rose Craig. You have all these things coming up about how good nature is for your mental health and I think part of that is kind of it follows its own rules. It isn't part of, you know, the internet or consumption or, you know, the cities that we've sort of built for ourselves. It's just its own thing. And I think that's one of the reasons why it is so refreshing. And I think for me, like I've always been terrible at like mindfulness and meditation and things like that but like for me going on a walk out in the country somewhere that is my version of like mindfulness. Maya Rose is an ornithologist, an environmentalist, a diversity activist as well as a writer, speaker and broadcaster. Oh and she's only 20 years old. Oh my goodness, she is incredible. She's completely astounding. She's been a twitcher. That's someone who travels to specific locations to spot birds since she was literally a few days old. She goes by Bird Girl because there is nothing, and I mean nothing, this young woman doesn't know about birds and about their environments. She's written the most beautiful book, also called Bird Girl. But interestingly, it's about so much more than birds, as is this gorgeous chat I had with her. It's about adventure. It's about the relationship between nature and mental health. And it's about encouraging patience. Maya Rose often has had to wait days, weeks, years in some cases to spot a particular bird. And I think there's a lot we can all learn from that about slowing our lives down a bit. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Okay, here it is. This is the show. to meet you Maya. So lovely to meet you as well. Thank you for coming to see me today. We've got so much to talk about. I know that you've had a really busy month already because you've just finished some exams at university. How was that? It was okay, yeah. (laughs) It's nice that it's now all over. It's summer, you know. No, I'm glad exam season's over and the book's coming out in a week, which is insane. I don't know how you've done this. So um, amongst your busy life, being at university, running your organisation, Black to Nature, you've managed to somehow write an amazing (laughs) book. How is the question? (laughs) God. Um, I think, very long story short, I took a gap year after A-levels and I was like, I'm going to do like, you know, all the normal things. I'm going to go interrailing around Europe, all that sort of thing. And then obviously, pandemic. Yeah. Um, so I was like in my house for a year and it's like, I need to do something. And actually, the book was an amazing project. So I was like reliving all of these places that I'd travelled all over the world. So even though I was sort of stuck in my house in Somerset, 
you know, it felt like I was going all over the world again. It was amazing. I know there's so much adventure in this book. So it's called Bird Girl. There's obviously a lot about birds in there. I learned so much about <laughs> birds, which was fascinating. And it's made me really start walking around, just sort of like looking up rather than... Amazing. Yes. That is like the goal. That's amazing. The goal worked. <laughs> Honestly, I've been sort of rather than like just doodling around or on my phone, I've been like, oh. I don't know what that bird is. We're lucky enough. There's a church opposite our house. Mm. And we've got two peregrine falcons who live on the spire of the church. So we often see them and there's lots of twitches who come and sort of check Mm. them out and watch them swooping and diving. But as well as this book being about birds, it's also heavily based on adventure, which I love any book that has adventure and travel in, but also is based on mental health. And we'll, we'll talk about that a bit down the line. But first of all, let's talk about this moniker, Bird Girl, your other name. <laughs> um, you come from a family of twitchers. For anybody that hasn't read the book, tell us how your family got into bird watching and, and why it really captured your passion as well. Um, the thing with the bird watching is my gran always jokes that my dad would have just kicked me out of the family if I hadn't been into birds. <laughs> like, it was one of these things where I kind of had no choice, but in the best way possible. Because my dad's been obsessed with birds his whole life, like, since he was very little. He's always just been watching them. And then he met my mum, who was like, she was a proper city girl, never really been to the countryside. And she was like, oh, you know, what? I don't want any part of this. You can go off and watch the birds by yourself. Within, I think, about six months, he had her obsessed with birds as well. And my um, older sister. And, you know, by the time I was born, um, you know, they were, ta- they were just taking me out. And I, I think I was nine days old um, the first time they wow. took me bird watching. And I've just been doing it ever since. That's so incredible. So your parents met at university and that's where your dad sort of persuaded your mum to, to get involved in birds. Watching. Um, yeah, a bit afterwards. They met um, clubbing, actually. Which, <laughs> um, nice. Yeah, and it was just one of these things where she just did not understand. I mentioned a bit, the first time she met him, she spotted him at the club and one of her friends went, like, you need to be careful of him, he's a twitcher. <laughs> and she didn't know that men. Um, and I think it could she sound did, quite dodgy. I've come oh, it does, like, yeah. What the hell is a twitch? <laughs> And um, I think if she'd known, she would have like run in the other direction. Um, But she was just too naive and she sort of got in. And by the time she realised how deep the obsession with birds ran, she was in too deep. It's too late. Well, you say this in the book, bird watching for your whole family. It's not a hobby. This Mm. is like, it's so woven into your Mm. life. It's a way of life that... It is obsessional because it's it's all day, every day, if you want it to be, as well as carving out mm. these amazing moments to go and bird watch. And as you said, from a really young age, your family were taking you off at weekends, going around the UK, looking for birds. Mm. And one of your first sort of main um, introductions to it was a big year. Can you tell us the concept of a big year, what it is, how it works? Yeah, um, so basically a big year is a year when a bird watcher tries to see as many birds as possible. Like, that's basically what it boils down to. And I was six um, when my dad decided that he wanted to do one and I decided that I wanted to join in. Um, And it was the most insane, bonkers, brilliant year, like, of my life. Um, It was one of those things where it's sort of looking back, now that I'm a bit older, that was a ridiculous thing to do with a six-year-old. But (laughs) at the time, it just felt so natural and so normal. And we were just going all over the place, seeing these amazing birds... I mean, it is. I've got a six-year-old, and I can't imagine. I'm like so tired all the time for a start. <laughs> so hats off to your parents because you would. It could be like three in the morning. You're in the car, ready to drive because you've heard that there's this amazingly rare bird. It could be in Scotland, and you've got to be there on that Saturday morning at dawn or wherever it might be. And and you were just all game for it. 
Yeah, and I think that kind of boils down to the thing about birds, which is like even when we're really knackered, they do sort of re-energize us, and they—I guess—that's one of the threads running through the book. They do sort of. I don't know, like rejuvenate us, I guess. And so even though it was this big year, like we were absolutely knackered because we were up at dawn all the time. We were driving ridiculous distances all over the UK. It was just so exciting and it was so fun. And I think in general, like with the book as well, like you mentioned, you know, you've noticed the birds and that was the goal because I think I've spent my whole life trying to explain this sort of weird hobby to people and I think people just don't get it um I think especially because it's very much like the classic sort of older middle-aged bloke post-retirement hobby um so being like 15 years old and trying to explain to my mates right I'm a bird watcher um is really hard and so I think like with this I wanted people to read it and I suppose, understand a bit like how someone could be that obsessed with birds. Yeah, there's also something lovely about sort of collating information or sort of collecting something, ticking Mm. things off a list. I find that very satisfying, knowing that you've, like, there's points in the book where I think, have you said, you know, you've seen 5,000 birds, is it, in total? Yeah, just And there's, what, 10,000 species worldwide? Just over half. (laughs) Yeah. That's unbelievable, but so satisfying to be Mm. collating that information and having that stored in your head as well is so brilliant. And obviously another really important part of bird watching, which is the most underrated, thing and something that on mass we're awful at is patience mm. so you from a very young age had to sit and you know you can't control how nature's going to work that bird's going to turn up when it turns up and you've just got to sit it out and it could be for hours it could be for days weeks I'm imagining at times how did you did you just naturally have patience did you learn patience how did that arrive <laughs> um ironically I'm not a patient person at all <laughs> Um, I think like when I was very little, my parents were just very good at making it into like an adventure. It was a treasure hunt, you know. The thing with bird watching is in some ways it would be really unsatisfying if you just walked out there and you just immediately saw everything that you were after. And so sort of having that period of tension where you don't know if you're going to see it or not, that's kind of what makes it. And I think there's so many times in the book where I there's this moment where I'm like, are we going to see it? But the problem, like nearly every single time the answer is yes. And there were so many things I didn't include where it's like, yeah, we didn't see the bird. But that is part of the fun because it's a genuine question. But yeah, it's brilliant fun. Like I think um, in terms of like Twitches in the UK, sorry, Twitches being like when, when you're going somewhere to see like a specific bird, I think it is in the chapter about the big year that there were just some amazing waiting games that we played. I think the most major one was the Eastern Crown Warbler. It was a first for Britain. Like, there had never been one in the UK before. Um, We'd rolled up at dawn. There were thousands of people there at this, like, random golf course on the East Coast trying to see this tiny brown warbler. And it was sort of those hours of waiting before we saw it that made it so worth it when we finally did. You just talking about this now, Mai, is making me think, is this one of the main problems we have with sort of general happiness in the modern world? (laughs) I really genuinely think it is, because even if I think back to when I was a kid and we had like way less TV channels, obviously that's like four, and there was just way less choice with everything and you did have to wait for, you know, even looking at silly things like trainers, there'd be trainers out in America and you'd wait six months for them Mm. to get here or a movie would come out in the States and you'd wait two months for the release here and that anticipation was so gorgeous Mm. and now you can literally get anything you want whenever you want because of the internet and because of how we use phones and the digital world and we've sort of lost that amazing anticipation in so many parts of life. I think that could be a real 
missing link for us all but we're too far gone now we can't bring that back can we yeah but I think I think that's why nature's so amazing though because yeah. you know you have all these things coming out about how good nature is for your mental health and I think part of that is kind of it follows its own rules it isn't part of you know the internet or consumption or you know the cities that we've sort of built for ourselves it's just its own thing yeah um, and I think that's one of the reasons why it is so refreshing and I think for me like I've always been terrible at like mindfulness and meditation and things like that but like for me going on a walk out in the countryside somewhere that is my version of like mindfulness yeah um especially I quite often leave my phone at home and things like that so I'm just like there in the moment and it's so different from like the rest of the way that I lead my life because I am very like online it's amazing like I really live for those moments yeah no I'm the same like I I do struggle to sit and actually meditate and I'll always work out an excuse like oh good <laughs> go and organise that cupboard or whatever it might be or colour code my books because that really needs doing. <laughs> but actually just getting out and being outside is so meditative in itself mm. and just being aware because that, I guess, is what a meditation is, isn't it? Just being aware of your thoughts or what's around you, the sensations. So it's a beautiful way of doing it. So let, let's talk more about mental health because so much of the backbone of this book is based on mental health and mental illness because your mum was diagnosed with bipolar when you were a kid mm. and bird watching was something that really held you guys together as a family. So what what did it mean for you as a kid growing up having your, your mum deal with bipolar? The whole thing was just a really difficult journey because especially because there wasn't you know a single moment where she went to the doctor and they like went like right this is what's going on this is the issue it it took years and years for her to actually get diagnosed she ended up getting sectioned at one point it it was difficult and I think without realizing it that's kind of where the birds came into play because we were using that a like we're talking about you know to escape life and all the issues that we were dealing with to spend time outdoors sort of separate from everything but also to spend time together because it's always for us been like massively a family activity but it was only when she became much more unwell when I was about eight that we started doing that much more proactively it went from just this is something that we're doing together and we really enjoy it and it helps us to like right you know, we're really struggling as a family. My mum's really unwell. Um, my dad's really struggling. I didn't really know what was going on to some extent. You know, my dad made this active decision that we were going to do this to stay together. And I think that is genuinely one of the things that has been critical the last 10 years in terms of keeping us together, which is one of the reasons I'm such a big advocate in terms of, you know, that link between nature and mental health. Yeah. I mean, your dad's reaction very much seemed to be from reading the book, when your mum's mental health was on the decline, he would actively go, we're we're checking out of this everyday mm-hmm. life and we're going to go on an adventure. So, for instance, I think you were about eight or nine when you had six months in South America mm-hmm. on this extraordinary <laughs> adventure looking for birds. And, and your mum's mental health did pick up in those times. What do you think it is about, you know, you've talked about the nature bit. What is it about specifically birdwatching you think that really kept you together as a family and really helped your mum through it all? Um, I think it's a few different things. Like, I think firstly, like I said, it's something that we do together um, and it's sort of this group obsessional hobby thing. And I think sort of us... I suppose all relating to that together and reveling in that together was so important in terms of like building back that relationship because for me like I didn't have a relationship with her and I did have to rebuild that and that was a really difficult process so you know I think just the birds in and of itself 
Um, I think like we were talking about before, it is this sort of box ticking exercise where, you know, you have a list and you're like, right, I want to see this. I want to see this. I want to see this. And then just going around doing that um, is incredibly satisfying. But I think also it was just a form in which sort of our escapism manifests itself because it was escapism. Yeah. Like we we literally ran away from the country. Yeah. Um, and it was amazing. Um, like no regrets. And But I think especially that trip in South America that you mentioned, it's another one of those things that I look back on now that I'm a bit older and I was like, that is a bit ridiculous, but in the best <laughs> way possible. <laughs> uh, honestly, I was reading it feeling so inspired by your parents. <laughs> like, why not? Why not go and have this amazing adventure? Why not do that for the health of your family? It's a beautiful thing to do. And for you to then be educated in such a way, you know, that is a true education getting out and seeing, you know, like your knowledge of South America and the landmarks and the wildlife is mind blowing. And, you know, that's because you've been there. You've seen it. You've you've seen the birds. You've felt the soil. You've smelled the smells. It's really important. I found it really deeply inspiring and 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 just a beautiful moment for you as a family you saw is it over a thousand birds on that trip yeah. and you were hoping to only see about 300 so i know that you all came back on on a high but obviously when you came back there's a period like even if you've been on holiday that moment of you're reminiscing and oh I remember this remember that yeah. and it all feels quite sweet and lovely and then when that goes that's when your mum's mental health again mm. took a bit of a nosedive so how did you how did you ride that out yeah. I mean, it was also really difficult timing because obviously summer holidays, um, I had school. So we'd sort of come back to, you know, the really grim, rainy British autumn, oh, <laughs> which God. I think definitely like played a role <laughs> the in worst. that. Yeah. But thankfully, autumn is the best time for twitching. Um, oh, brilliant. That's when all the rare birds are sort of blown into the UK. So we did a lot of that. And then, you know, it is sort of this endless cycle of planning new places to run away to. So it is sort of January time that my parents start going, where, where are we going to go next? And then they start planning it. And then they get to like, get really excited because they spend months planning this trip. And it's sort of, it is this endless cycle. Oh, it's so, so wonderful. Going back a little bit, something you said earlier, you know, there was a period where your mum was undiagnosed. Mm. And I'm sure she felt a huge level of frustration and confusion through that. And you must have as a child. Without having that language or really understanding what it was, how it worked, how it was going to affect your mum, how is it going to affect you, the cycles that, that might be in play. As a small kid, what what were your assumptions? Because, you know, like for, for all kids, what you know is your normal. You don't really have too much to compare it with. So did you un have an understanding of what was going on? Um, I think it was a, quite a mixed bag, partially because bi bipolar is obviously a mixed bag. You know, you yeah. get these periods of months sometimes where someone is either manic or depressed. And, you know, my mum is a massive personality, like she always has been. So I think especially when it was sort of the more manic, high energy side of things, it's just like, yeah, you know, we're having a good time. We're all having fun. Um, she's just very excited about all these things. She's very busy. She's, you know, she's got a lot on her plate. It's great fun. So I think I was much less aware of that. But the depressive episodes, which were less common... I think were much more striking to me because that was the opposite. Like it was very different from her normal personality for her, you know, to just 
be in bed like that. But like I said, like like you said, sorry, I just didn't have the language to understand what was going on. She was, I think, diagnosed with depression at one point, and that that just was it. Just wasn't no. quite right, and none of us thought that that was quite right. And in the end, that did actually make things much worse because um, treatment for depression quite often makes bipolar much worse. And then, you know, there was this period after she got sectioned where they tried to make me go to therapy, basically. And I was like nine years old. I was furious about it. I thought I had nothing to say. And I just remember the question that kept on coming up is, how do you feel now that your mum has bipolar? And I genuinely couldn't comprehend that question because I was like, this is how she always has been. It's sort of totally interlinked with her personality who she is so for me there is no difference apart from now you know we're, we're trying to make her feel better basically so yeah it, it was really difficult but I think again especially as I got a bit older it helped explain so many things that yeah. we've been dealing with for a really long time and with bipolar there's periods of, of mania as well mm. how did that show up in your life I mean in the future it, it depends I suppose on where her head's at basically yeah. um Because she was a lawyer, so I think a lot of my very early childhood, she was just very, like, mentally, she was, she was, you know, in the cases in the office, um, and she spent a lot of time working, like, a lot of time. She was a a brilliant lawyer because she sort of gave everything to it. But I suppose the flip side of that is you then exhaust yourself, and that's when she then became depressed. So there was that. Um, Looking back, I think that big year was possibly slightly linked to a manic episode just because there was so much obsessional birding and obviously dad didn't realize she was unwell so he was just very excited yeah. <laughs> that we were doing that much bird watching um so it, it's lots of different ways and it's not always negative either i think that's the thing but i think the funny thing with the book is when i was first envisaging it it wasn't about any of this it was about birds oh really um, yeah and it was only when i started to you know plan it all out and you know was thinking about the different trips that I want to talk about the different birds that I wanted to talk about that I started to sort of think you know like because I didn't want to give that much of myself in a way to a book and I just realized it it was a half a story it didn't make any sense and you needed the context of our lives and mum's illness to understand why we would do something like run away to South America for six months or you know very consistently every single year escape the country for six weeks and it was sort of as I started adding that element in I felt you know I had a you know a few really long conversations with my mum and we were talking a lot about just the importance of really explicit conversations about mental health. And I think one of the things I wanted to do is I feel like in some ways the bipolar isn't really a negative or a positive thing in the book. It just is. Yeah. Even at the end, like, you know, spoiler alert or whatever. But like, (laughs) um, you know, in the very last chapter, like there's no magic wand. There's no solution. We found equilibrium in our lives, but we're just, living yeah Um, and I think you know that's the reality of it it is and it's really important to talk about mental health in that way because so often say when these stories then transpire in newspapers or they get sensationalized Mm. they like to tie it up and now this person is fine (laughs) and even if I see my my own story written about I'm like that's not it like yeah I'm not where I was 10 years ago but it's not like then everything was fine I think it's really important to talk about coping mechanisms, but then being long-term and part of your life rather than Mm. if you do this one thing, you'll be fixed. It's like, no, it's a balancing (laughs) act and and that's Mm. how you have to do it. And I know with with that diagnosis, I'm sure it brought an element of clarity for, for all of you and to have the language and to have 
you know, a better understanding or even other people that you will meet along the way who might have experienced a similar thing. But for your mum's side of the family who are Bangladeshi, there was kickback and Mm. a sort of a shame around the diagnosis Mm. and perhaps a lack of acceptance. Has has anything changed since the diagnosis? Yeah, it has actually. Like, especially my my nanu, my mum's mum, who I think just partially just didn't really understand that just wasn't in terms of her frame of reference in the world and so mum going right I have bipolar just did not clock even and you know there's uh, there's a bit in the book where I talk about how some of the elders in our family strongly suspected mum was possessed by jinn because that's how you explain these sorts of things and it's how in their lives how it's always been explained when someone um, is behaving in that way and in terms of that, Jen, she tried to be very um, supportive. You know, she was like, she gave mum like tabbies and things like that so that it, you know, would leave her. But, you know, that was probably 12 years ago now. And it's been a very long journey. But I think the main thing that has changed has just been the way that mum has obviously gotten better, basically. And just having really long conversations, like very honest conversations about, you know, the healing process, medication, um, how it all makes things better you know it it does help and I think in some ways once you do gain that understanding of mental health and mental illness it makes a lot of other things make sense I think I talk a little bit about how my mum was actually very unwell when she was at uni for example and again it was one of those things that like the family just didn't understand at the time and now they do and I think it's really like I don't know it's really exciting Um, because I think especially with like stigma around various things such as mental illness there's always this assumption that like older people especially are very rooted in their own life experiences and can't change or any of that and you know it's just not true at Mm. all I completely agree and it and it's amazing again that you've got this brilliant formula of going as a family bird watching or all off on your own that helps like that's a beautiful Mm. thing and you you even say that trip to South America when you're a small kid there's a lovely line where you say something like, you know, I didn't just find birds, I found my parents on that trip because you really saw them outside of the home, which, you know, I've obviously got young kids and you do end up in this sort of cycle of making their tea, getting them in the bath, getting them in bed. And it's this kind of routine that you get stuck in and you do miss little magic moments of conversation or of experience. But when you're extracting yourself from the home and you're on an adventure like that, of course you're going to have deeper bonding, better conversations, more shared experience. So how did you find your parents? What was that experience like? (laughs) What did you learn about them on that trip? Um, I think initially it was really weird. Like partially just because I, especially my mum, like I just hadn't spent that time with her for a really long time um, because she'd been working so much and then she'd been really depressed and then, like I said, she'd been sectioned. And so, like, it kind of wasn't just about the birds. For my parents, I I didn't realise at the time, but afterwards, for them, it was also about being able to spend that time with me. So, yeah, at first it was very weird and it was all about the birds, but it was just, like, slowly rebuilding that in a very very natural way, I suppose, um, because it was, like, obviously we were dealing with some really difficult things. But I think, like, it mattered that it was a birding trip in particular. It couldn't have just been a holiday because it was these sort of things that we were experiencing together that were really uniting us. But I still remember to this day, you know, it was like these amazing hummingbirds that we were like running through the forest to spot or like, I don't know, like an Andean cock of the rock, like performing in its lek, you know, to attract a female or, you know, like something like that. It's not just the moment of, it's us 
sharing that together mm. afterwards. Um, and it was just amazing. Oh, it's so beautiful. It, 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 sometimes I need to kick up the arse to do adventure. I, get, I can get a bit like safe, like, oh, well, this might happen and that might happen. And I think reading your book again was like, no, we need to go and do stuff as a family, like have adventures and do new things. For that very reason that you can recite all of these acute memories that I want my kids to have that experience of, mm. I remember this exact thing, where we were, what we were doing. And also, I guess, I don't know if you found this, but there's certainly something about doesn't matter where you are, you could be in a park or just walking around. But when you're walking with someone, you can often have a much better conversation mm. rather than just being sat with them. I mean, we should probably do this podcast out walking, actually. We'll probably <laughs> get a really, really deep sort of level of conversation. Maybe it's to do with sometimes you're both facing outwards yeah. and you're not looking at each other or there's other distractions it just allows you to, for some reason, be a little bit more intimate. And I often go walking with a couple of mates, one of them who's having a really rough time at the moment, and we have really great chats on our walk. Other times I've been in a rough place and I've sort of, you know, been able to freely talk about something. But it's definitely, it's, it's a good place to kind of get stuff going and to get conversations flowing. Did you find that you had a sort of different style of conversation with your parents when you were out adventuring? Oh, totally. And I think it is, it's definitely what you said. It's sort of the walking side by side rather than trying to look at each other. Yeah. And yeah, I, I, and again, I have so many conversations that I remember so distinctly that were obviously like, I don't know, very formative for me at the time. But it wasn't just those conversations. It was the fact, you know, in theory, I was being homeschooled. So especially my dad sort of took on the role of the teacher as well. So he'd have hours where we were sort of bumping along in the car along some dirt track and he'd be in the back trying to like teach me about particles or something. Oh my God, just... your dad is a legend. <laughs> um, <laughs> and at the time I was like, God, why have I got to learn all this stuff? This is so boring. But I think, it, it, like, again, it was one of those things where, like, looking back, um, it was like this amazing quality time together. Mm. Um, and I think now that I am a bit older again, like, I have so much respect for them because I know how difficult it must have been. And they really pushed through. And it was just, it was, it was amazing. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com So you'd been on a big trip like that and you'd had this extraordinary time of adventure and you've ticked off thousands of birds on your list, which is a great high for you. Like you said earlier, then integrating back into your regular school life with your friends who probably have been to like, they played football at the park at the weekend and that's as adventurous as it got. How did you navigate that transition time and time again? I remember it was really weird the first time that we came back from like a very long trip. I sort of came back and I'd been on this massive transformative journey and I felt like, you know, my eyes had been opened, I'd seen the world, you know, all that sort of thing. And I came back and, you know, we live in a very small rural village as well and I sort of came back and I think subconsciously I'd, I'd expected some big change in some way because it felt like there'd been a big change in my life and everything was exactly the same as when we left it and including my friends. And I think, because I was quite young, you know, I was like, 10 at this point and I think it was so difficult like I just didn't even have the language to explain what we'd been doing where we'd been and like 
I think it was so out of, I suppose, their own frame of reference that my friends just couldn't quite understand. And it felt like everything was about two inches to the left. And I think I just slowly realised that that was nothing to do with where I'd come back to. It was me. And it had, like, changed me in some shape or form. Um, And I just remember that was really jarring the first time that I realised that. But I think, you know, as I got older and we continued to go on those trips, that sort of went from being very surprising to sort of being the norm. Yeah. And... I don't know, I think especially, you know, I talk a bit about in the book sort of the mortifying experience of being a teenager and being observed and things like that. And it sort of, it got to the point where I was sort of living this dual life. And I think in some ways it was much easier to come home and sort of not really think about it when I was at school and with my friends. Because otherwise, like, how would I even begin to explain this sort of thing, especially when I was so, you know, horrifically embarrassed of mentioning birds in front of people (laughs) at school. Oh, which is such a shame because it's so funny that teenage year, like, so my nine-year-old is absolutely obsessed with nature. Mm -hmm. It's his everything, whether it's the sea, which he's particularly fond of, or at the moment he's really into just collecting feathers when we're out and about Mm -hmm. and he'll try and work out what feather is what. We've got a big Tupperware in the the kitchen now. And it's that sweet age now where... You know, he'll take in a stag beetle that he's found to school that he found dead in the garden or whatever it might be. And it's all really celebratory. But there's this age where it mm. just tips and it starts to become something you can't say to your friends or you can't share with people. And it's such a shame. It was, yeah. And it's one of those things that I look back and I think, you know, it's sort of this almost very narcissistic aspect of being a teenager because I look back and it's just like, no one cared. Like, right. literally, but we all no go through cared. it, don't we? We all think um, it. But for me, it was definitely going to secondary school because primary school, like, everyone, it was very small, so everyone just yeah. knew. Like, I never particularly told anyone, but everyone knew my parents. Everyone just knew about the bird watching. Yeah. Um, but it was going to secondary school and it coming up in conversation. And I do remember sort of the sudden realisation that this was embarrassing. Mm. <laughs> um, and this was something that I probably shouldn't mention to people. Um, and I sort of, you know, I, I did tell quite a lot this um period of being a teenager where I just did not want to be like seen or recognized especially in terms of the birding but you know I was 13 and I just wanted to melt into the background and the birds really didn't help with that because that wasn't normal yeah. um, oh god it's just being a teenager is excruciating I know, would never want to do it again no. but I think like like again it was this weird realization as I hit maybe 16 17 where it went from like more than just no one cares it was like actually this is interesting yes and then it was like going to union it was like whoa having like a hobby that makes you (laughs) different is again interesting oh it's so Um, interesting people gravitate towards that and I think that's the difference between being like 12 and being like 20 yeah um is that suddenly you don't want to be the same as everyone else um and I think that was a very weird realization when I was about 16 that it was like oh cool this is like this is a good thing actually yeah more than a good thing <laughs> like an impactful thing and that was around the same age that you started Black to Nature as well so t- talk to me a little bit about that I, I guess I don't know where to begin almost like <laughs> um I guess because obviously I um my my family's Bangladeshi my mum's family is and I think growing up, I'd almost just taken it for granted that I just never really saw anyone that looked like us, basically, out and about in the countryside, in nature, birdwatching, any of it. And so it sort of almost went without saying that being outdoors was an incredibly, like, white hobby. And it was only... I remember I was about 13 and... I decided I wanted to like hang out with other kids that had the same hobbies as me and stuff. And I decided that I was going to do a nature camp. And it was really popular. Loads of people signed up and they were all white teenage boys. And 
I just had this moment where I was like, right, um, I'm going to do something about this. And I went into like local city, Bristol, and I just got a bunch of kids and I brought them out into the countryside. And I remember at the time, everyone online was like, this is a terrible idea. There are just, you know, certain people who can't engage with the outdoors, you know, all this sort of thing. And when these kids turned up, they were not happy. They didn't want to be there. I remember them going like, oh, my mum sent me. And I was so like, I was like, God, what am I doing? And then they all had a really good time and they all connected with nature. And I think this is like a light bulb moment for me where I went like, this isn't to do with the people who aren't going outdoors. This is something bigger. This is something deeper. Yeah. Um, and it was about a year later that I ended up setting up Black to Nature after we ran a big conference basically for organizations in the nature sector to go like why is this an issue why are like groups of people being excluded from accessing the outdoors and it was very productive that it never occurred to them to go and talk to people from black and asian communities before and these people just stood up and they went it's because of this and this and this and this and you know i very naively felt like this was going to be the big change because i'd basically given them like a blueprint of how to start solving this issue and it was only a few months later when nothing had happened that I was like, right, this isn't like a one-time thing. I'm setting up this charity and we're going to continue to campaign about this. And I think telling 14-year-old me that 20-year-old me <laughs> would still be um, fighting on this issue, I'm not sure what reaction that would have got. But, um, <laughs> you were like, this will take like a few days and we'll sort this one out. <laughs> but no, it's like anything systemic. It's, it's a mm. long, drawn-out process, but yeah. you've got... Lived experience and passion that is, I'm sure, just going to keep driving you to to grow it and grow it. You know, what are what are your hopes with it? What how are you planning to expand it? How are you reaching new communities constantly? How's it working at the moment? Yeah. So in terms of the stuff that Black's Nature does, like half of it is these nature camps. Like yeah. it's very grassroots, but working with kids on the ground, and that for me, that's like my favourite side of I it because it's just really good fun. Yeah. Um, but the other side of it is, you know probably the slightly more impactful on a larger scale, but the like very broad campaigning, working with sectors, like fighting very, you know, a very systemic issue, like you said. And so in terms of that, that's been a very interesting journey because it sort of went from when I first started, no one w wanted to even use the word racism. Um, no one want to, not wanted to acknowledge that this very um, white liberal space could be discriminatory in any way. And so just no one wanted to talk to me. And I really, really had to badger people. And I think I pissed a lot of people off at the time. Good. Um, but it was just, it was... <laughs> you have to piss was, people off. I know. It's it the only so way, difficult. isn't it? <laughs> like, I think a memory that really stuck with me is, because I went through a period where I was trying to talk to all the CEOs of different organisations. And I just could I won't name names, but I could not get hold of one of them. And I remember I bumped into him at a conference and he literally just like, not ran away, but like walked in the other direction. Oh my God, please um, grow up. I can't bear this for you. This is so embarrassing. <laughs> what is this person doing? <laughs> um, so there was all that side of thing that oh we're dealing God with. And it's almighty. been like, brilliant because the last six years there's been a massive shift. Like lots yeah. of these like very old <clears throat> CEOs that I was trying to talk to have now retired. So Good. there's a new generation. And, you know, the conversations changed massively, especially during the pandemic. I think lots of people suddenly went like, I have the time. I have, you know, the energy, I'm not working, I have a bit of money, we're going to venture out into the countryside so that we can escape the city for a day. Um, so I think a lot of people had this sort of realisation that they wanted to spend time outdoors when they were able to. So that's all been, it's been very slow and very difficult, but that side of things has all been going well. Um, but in terms of, I suppose, the nature camps and things like that, like I said, I love doing them, they're brilliant fun. And we have sort of been 
experimenting in different ways. Like the pandemic was obviously really difficult because we couldn't have yeah. overnight camps anymore. So then we were like experimenting with like tree planting days and things like that, which that was brilliant. Gorgeous. Um, we've um, been starting to work with various refugees in Bristol and things like that, which has been really successful. But I think the biggest thing, because it's always been like, mine um, which sounds silly but like I started it and I was really like I, I was running this charity basically and it's also it's very local like it's Bristol based it's in the southwest and I was moving away for uni and I sort of had this moment where I was like what's going to happen because I didn't want this you know years of work to just sort of crumble apart and so one of my big goals during my year off was this is going to be like a self-sustaining charity where it doesn't need me to be there to run it and so the really cool thing has been while I've been away this year, like it's been going, like it's it's been That's working so with people brilliant. still, and it's so exciting. Like it's so strange because it's kind of like my baby. Oh, it's but, amazing! Um, it's so exciting. Oh, it's just so beautiful what you're doing. It's so it's so so gorgeous. And I think again and again, you know, when we're having conversations on here, usually about mental health or or emotional well being or whatever it might be, so often you can't have that conversation without bringing the environment into mm. it, but also without bringing, you know, systemic, even political issues into it. It's all the same thing. And I think we're mm. all realising that the more we talk about these issues, you can't really compartmentalise it and go, we're just talking about mental health. Mm. Because you can't talk about that without looking at certain portions of society that have a disadvantage mm. that are left out or who don't have access to nature or how nature can help us and how us helping nature is good for everything. So mm, it's yeah. we really have to sort of connect all the dots and it feels like Black to Nature is just doing all of that. Yeah, I mean, mental health was actually one of the big reasons that I really wanted to start it and I really wanted to carry on working with people, actually. Um, partially, obviously, because of my own experiences and, you know, just how important nature is for our mental health and our well-being and all that sort of thing. But also because, you know, ethnic minority communities are really severely affected by mental illness in the UK. I think... Black men um, make up the largest portion of society in terms of who has been sectioned in the UK and things like that. You know, there's a real sort of quiet crisis going on. And even though no one's claiming that, like, going outside for a couple of days is going to, like, cure severe mental illness, it you know, it does make a difference in terms of our well-being. And so, like, especially in terms of the camps where we're working with younger kids, we have a lot of very gentle conversations where it's like... You know, if you're feeling like sad or angry or upset, just go to the park for 10 minutes and just sit by yourself. And it's just trying to give kids the tools to like manage their own mental well-being, basically. It's so important because we all know there's obviously mental health, you know, worsening. I don't know what extent, but... Oh, the world we live in doesn't help due to everything that we're dealing with, the digital world, consumerism, mm. etc. We all know that, but equally we know that the resources there for people are dwindling or certainly not capable to look after the amount of people that are having a tough time, especially the minorities that are really suffering here. So whatever it is that's going to take the edge off that's going to help, brilliant. And nature mm. is there for all of us. You know, if you can... Get outside, hopefully. I know not everybody can, but if you can get outside, it's mm-hmm. going to help. So I think you don't even need to downplay that one. I think it's one of the most brilliant things that we can do just to feel mm. okay, even if it's, you know, because, again, if we go back to what we were talking about earlier, you know, 
focusing on we have to fix it we have to look for the remedy mm. there might not be one we just need to manage mm. our own mental well-being whether we've got a mental illness or not and nature is the the best thing we could we could do for it yeah absolutely and i think like and you know you're talking about how especially my generation sort of generation of people mm-hmm. dealing with like depression and anxiety yeah. and things like that and i do think that is partially because of this sort of increasing separation for people from nature and the outdoors. I suppose on the flip side of all of this, like I think people forming this connection with nature and realising how important it is for them to go outdoors also links to, you know, biodiversity loss and things like that in the UK. Because I really think, well, I, I, I suppose like no one has a reason to care about these issues if they've never been outside, if they've yep. never been to the country. If you haven't seen part. it, why are you going like, to care? Wh- yeah, why should you care about, like, I don't know, hedgehogs going oh, extinct if, like, hedgehogs. you've never seen one? Don't say that, I can't bear it. <laughs> um, so it feels like, as well, like, getting people outside is also helping with these broader environmental issues. And like you say, right, so not only is there that separation there, but earlier on when you were talking about the importance for your family of doing these these beautiful bird watching trips when you'd go on an adventure and it being about the shared experience I think we're really lacking in that mm. you know we can we think we're doing all this social stuff on our phones and we're part of a community or we're part of something and it's mm. like yeah but are you you know there's one thing saying you are or communicating with someone digitally but are you actually gathering with them are you sharing a lived experience with them and obviously when you're not feeling well it's the last thing you want to do like when I was in a a really dark place 10 years ago I didn't want to see a soul Mm. but as soon as I started to put myself in that situation and it was something that was gentle and feel good it helps so I think Mm. it's the separation from nature but it's also the true separation from each other because we're Mm. just all a bit disconnected yeah I mean I think you know again the pandemic goes to show that there's sort of these online conversations even like zoom and things like that which I'm you know sick to death of oh Um, so sick of zoom like (laughs) it it just you're right it it just goes to show that it doesn't replicate real human interaction and I just remember the point during the pandemic where I was so desperate to just see anyone yeah like even you know going on our daily government mandated stroll like I was so excited whenever we bumped into someone else outdoors oh same Um, like the postman's here (laughs) yay James the postman oh my god we all befriended our postman over the pandemic (laughs) it had to be done but I think that is such a big part of it as well is human Mm. connection it's huge so what's your next birding adventure do you still go as a family or do you now sort of go off on your own or in your own well you're actually doing it with younger children now as well in these Mm. camps but do you still as a sort of three or four go off bird watching oh we totally do yeah I mean it's been very weird moving away because there's less of that sort of quiet but regular bird watching and I've had to I'm now living in a city as well so I've had to sort of figure out how to continue birding um, which has been really difficult but yeah we totally do still do surf we have some amazing trips planned this summer which I'm very excited about and it's just it's all been really good fun but I think the thing with birds is the more you see the less there are to see um, so I feel like especially in the UK there's sort of less and less to see. And I remember there was this one bird, the little orc, um, that it was sort of the final bird you get in the UK that I'd just never seen. I'd never managed to track it down. It was ridiculous. And I, I'd spent years trying to see this bird. And it was only, 
a few months ago in December that I finally saw it and it wow. felt like this massive tick where I was like I've seen all the birds in the UK wow um, but it's sort of like it was amazing but, but it was now like it's on the like, flip side, I've done it like, what do I do <laughs> what do I do with myself um, so it's much more the more like casual just going on walks looking at birds type of thing but it's all been like yeah brilliant and let's talk about your favourite bird is the harpy eagle is yeah um, so why do you love this bird so much what's this bird taught you I think, you know, we were talking about patience earlier. Yeah. I think this has been the biggest test of patience in my life because I spent, I think, seven years, eight years possibly, trying to see this bird. Because I was eight years old where I saw it, like the illustration in a bird guide, and I just fell in love. I thought it was the coolest bird ever. And then I didn't see it until I was 17. Like, I spent years. (laughs) And it's just, it's brilliant. Like, I can't even begin to explain. Like, I just remember looking at it and I thought it was so cool. And I genuinely think anyone who's listening, Google a picture of a harpy eagle sat next to a human being because it looks like a person in an eagle suit. They are enormous. (laughs) They're the biggest eagle in the world. And it was just amazing. I think especially because when I finally saw it, it was just unexpected. Wow. Like, I didn't think I'd actually see it. And... Um, they hunt by, they have these massive, massive talons. They hunt by um, grabbing monkeys off the top of trees. And I just remember um, when we saw this bird, it was sat right up. And obviously the trees are massive in the Amazon. And it was sat right up there peering down at us. And it had this look in its eye where I was just thinking from that distance, you could we be probably look like monkeys. <laughs> I'd be shitting myself. Oh, my God. And you just sit there and go, we've just got to just see what happens here then, guys, because we're looking at it. Oh, my God. Wow, that's so right. cool. But no, seeing it, like, I think my mum said she's never seen me smile that much in my like in her life. Like, it was just amazing. This uh-huh. is so beautiful. Do you know what? I just hope all parents listening to this, sort of, I'm certainly going to encourage your kids to go out and just look up into the skies. They're everywhere. I can see a bird flying past. There's a really loud magpie in the tree I keep hearing as well. Nice. Makes a weird little... Like a clicky sound. Um, But it's such a beautiful thing to incorporate into your life. And I loved reading about all your adventures and how it's helped your mum so much and how it's helped you as a family. It's just a beautiful, important book. And um, it goes without saying that I'm so excited to see what you do next and how you expand your beautiful initiative. So it's just been wonderful talking to you today. Thank you. Oh, no, thank you so much for like having me. And I think, you know, like if you said, a single person reads it and they just start noticing the birds around them, like that would be amazing. You know what, I can't stop thinking about that story about those massive blimmin' eagles picking monkeys out of trees. I googled a picture immediately. It looks like a man in a suit. It's outrageous. The old harpy eagle. So good. Maya Rose is just the most brilliant person. So much fun. I can only imagine what a great time all those kids have with her on those nature camps. What a beautiful thing she's doing. Maya Rose's book, Bird Girl, is out now. And like I said throughout her chat, the sense of adventure is just amazing. And I bet you'll be looking up into the sky when you're out and about a bit more now, rather than down at your phone. Now, maybe you can come over to our Instagram, at Official and tell us about the cool birds you've spotted. Uh, as I said, we've got peregrine falcons in the church opposite, which are just amazing to watch. Thanks again to Maya Rose, to the producer, Anushka Tate at Rethink Audio, and to you gorgeous lot. I love you loads, and I'll chat soon.
mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com